Well, we are going to continue in Zechariah chapter 4. You know, when I prepared these, I actually expected a much older crowd. So it's good to see all the younger people. Um, and as I've talked to some of the younger people, I appreciate the just general optimism. I prepared this for people that are not as optimistic as you. So praise God for your optimism. <laughs> if you get a little jaded, this might help later. Um, this book is one of the five post-exilic books in the Old Testament, the other four being Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, and Malachi. Um, Malachi. The Italian prophet, right? Uh, these books cover the initial resettlement of Judah. And as you recall, both the northern and southern kingdoms were taken into captivity. The northern was captured by the Assyrians, whereas the south was captured by the Babylonians. Judah in the south was taken captive in three successive groups. After 70 years in exile, some of the Jews were allowed to return uh, to Judah and rebuild. And the post-exile return happens in three waves of people roughly over about 80 years. The first company returns under the leadership of Zerubbabel and inspired, uh, and inspired by prophets Haggai and Zechariah, they eventually rebuild the temple. 60 years later, the second wave returns from Babylon under the leadership of Ezra. And 14 years later, Nehemiah leads the third group and oversees the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. Now, it's important to remember what these small companies of Israelites were returning to. In 2 Chronicles 36, we find this description of what happened to Judah. Of 2 Chronicles 36, 17. Therefore the Lord brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of the sanctuary, and had no compassion on young men, or virgin, old man, or infirm. He gave them all into his hand, all the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasure, treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his officers. He brought them all to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God and broke down the walls of Jerusalem and burned all its fortified buildings with fire and destroyed all its valuable articles. So the southern kingdom was brutally depopulated the temple was laid to waste, and all of its defenses were destroyed, and all its wealth was carried away. Judah was reduced to a pile of smoldering ashes, and it remained that way for 70 years. Now, in Nehemiah 1, we have this recorded. Now, it happened in the month of Sheslev, in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. It's, the con the, it's condition, Jerusalem was, was that of a desolate land populated by a handful of unprotected, often terrified farmers due to being surrounded by cruel enemies. It was a sad situation. Hence, Nehemiah and many like him mourn the desolation of Judah. But there was a reason to be hopeful. God himself had made a promise of restoration in Jeremiah 33. It reads, Behold, I'll bring to, to it health and healing, and I'll heal them. And I'll reveal to them an abundance of peace and truth. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and will rebuild them as they were at first. 
I'll cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned against me and by which they have transgressed against me. It will be to me a name of joy, praise, and glory before all the nations of the earth, which will hear of all the good that I do for them. And they will fear and tremble because of all the good and all the peace that I make for it. Thus says the Lord, yet again, there will be heard in this place of which you say, it is a waste without man, without beast. That is in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate without man and without inhabitant and without beast. The voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voice of those who say, give thanks to the Lord of hosts for the Lord is good for his loving kindness is everlasting. And of those who bring a thank offering into the house of the Lord, for I will restore the fortunes of the land as they were at first, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, there will again be in this place which is waste without man or beast, and in all its cities a habitation of shepherds who rest their flocks in the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the lowland, in the city of the Negev, in the land of Benjamin, in the environs of Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, the flocks will again pass under the hands of the one who numbers them, says the Lord. So if you looked at the state of Judah with human eyes, there was no reason to be hopeful. It was a wasteland. However, if you look at it through the eyes of faith, with a heart that knows that God keeps his promises, there was reason to be optimistic. God said he will restore it, and he will. So that is what these post-exilic books cover the beginning of God's faithful restoration of Judah. Zechariah, uh, what we are looking at today, takes place in the early years of the resettlement. Uh, they were able to lay the foundation of the temple in the first two years, but construction had been stopped for 18 years due to Samaritans frustrating their attempts. Therefore, God, through his prophet, to encourage the Jews in their labors, uh, speaks. And we pick up in Zechariah 4. Then the angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who is awakened from his sleep. He said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand, all of gold with its bowl on the top of it. It's seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps, which are on top of it. Also two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on the left side. Then I said to the angel who was speaking with me, what are these, my Lord? So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel saying, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain and he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Also, the word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house and his hands will finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you for who has despised the day of small things. But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord which range to and fro throughout the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Father, bless this. As we tie up this time here, Lord, I pray that we would see things uh, through the lens of your scripture, 
that we would remember that you are the God that promises and you are the God that keeps your promise. I pray this would make us a bold and joyful people. In the name of your son, amen. Amen. This is the fifth of six visions given to the prophet Zechariah. Each of these visions were designed to both comfort and stir up the Jews to their work. And so it is with this one. Zechariah is given a vision of a golden lampstand, two olive trees, and we know that there was a golden lampstand in the temple and that they had started to lose faith that they would ever fully rebuild the temple. So God shows him something like what would be in the heart of a completed temple. But it's more than that, really. He says that there were seven spouts to the lamps on the top and also that there were two olive trees. So this is a lampstand which constantly was supplied by the abundance of oil. It was, it was always burning. And Zechariah doesn't understand their significance, so the angel explains that this is a lampstand, or this lampstand is the symbol of God's word to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. Therefore, this lampstand represents God's power at work in his covenant people. The lampstand is a symbol of the church, both in the Old and New Testament. So in Revelation 1, John writes, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches of Ephesus, of Smyrna, of Pergamum, of Thyatira, of Sardis, and to Philadelphia and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet." And, the, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it, had been, when it has been made to glow in the furnace. His voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he had held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Here, John is given a vision of Jesus, and in that vision, he is in the midst of seven lampstands, which clearly represent the seven churches. So God dwells in his church, or in, and, and his spirit is the source of its power. Uh, remember what Christ said to Peter. Uh, he said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail uh, over it. This is exactly what's being communicated uh, to these discouraged Jews. These men were looking soberly at the reality of their situation. Their numbers were not large. They had no army, few friends. They were surrounded by many aggressive enemies. Their ability to protect themselves was greatly limited. And as they went down the pro and con lists, the cons were winning, but they forgot the greatest pro, God is for them. Remember the great rhetorical question Paul asked in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? No one. In the Exodus, God raised up a Jewish redeemer in the very house that had ordered him to be killed along with all other Hebrew babies. God then proceeds to deliver the Hebrews and destroy the Egyptians in the most fantastic ways. But God's work sometimes is is much more subtle and such is the case with the resettlement. Matthew Henry again, his words are helpful. But they were brought out of Babylon and into Canaan the second time by the spirit of the Lord of hosts working upon the spirit of Cyrus, inclining him to proclaim liberty to them, working upon the spirits of the captives and inclining them to accept the liberty offered them. It was by the spirit of the Lord of hosts that these people were excited and animated to build the temple 
Therefore, they are said to be helped by the prophets of God because they, as the Spirit's mouth, spoke to their hearts, Ezra 5.2. It was by the same Spirit that the heart of Darius was inclined to favor and further the good work and that the sworn enemies of it were infatuated in their counsels so that they could not hinder it as they designed. Note, the work of God is often carried on very successfully when yet it is carried on very silently and without the assistance of human force. The gospel temple is built not by might or power, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but by the spirit of the Lord of hosts, whose work on men's conscience is mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. Thus the excellency of the power is of God and not of men. The ways of God are mysterious. Sometimes he works in grand fashions, other times through very subtle ways. He directs everything, the course of the most powerful rivers and the inner workings of a man's mind. He's sovereign over everything, and he is for us. It's easy to forget. It's easy to think that we are the power source, and that's when we become hopeless. But when we are reminded by the word that work is the uh, work is of the Lord, then we are stirred up to work with great confidence and joy. The fact that God work is working through us drives us to do it all the more. In verse 7, he says, What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain, and he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. So our time is full of challenges that seem insurmountable. They seem like great mountains. The condition of society and the church is very discouraging on the whole. Here, what the Lord's doing is great, but how many of you have friends and family members elsewhere that are just struggling to find anything orthodox, anything where they can actually be fed God's word and have encouraging fellowship? And there's so many people that we care about that are stuck in communities uh, that are very difficult places to raise a family and to find a decent job. It is very discouraging. We are watching rapid moral decline of our society. It is so rapid. There is a crusade in our culture against biblical sexuality. Godly femininity and masculinity is constantly mocked, uh, despised, and attacked. Marriage rates are down. Broken or single-parent homes are common. And the most wicked forms of sexual immorality are being normalized in all sectors of our culture, even right down to the cartoons our little kids watch. So we got rid of Netflix. It took us a while, but we did eventually get rid of it. And um, one of the things that did it is one of my, so uh, I've got three daughters. Galilee's uh, all into science and she's just like my wife. She likes little animals and does experiments and runs around in her boots, but still is very much a girl. And then I have my little misogynist, um, Cedar, Cedar Labrie, who's basically almost like a human cartoon, right? I asked her, Cedar's seven now? When she was six, I asked her to introduce herself to some guy that was at her church. And she said, I'm Cedar Labrie. I like unicorns and rainbows. <laughs> <laughs> totally not coached at all. Um, and she always has like a little ribbon in her hair and she doesn't walk anywhere. She, uh, she skips everywhere she goes, skips around, you know. Um, and uh, she found out that uh, Galilee was into science. He said, girls don't do science, right? <laughs> Only boys do science. I was like, Galilee, don't let people hear you say that, or Cedar, don't let people hear you say that. They'll, 
say, see, proof. He doesn't think women can do STEM. Or, uh, like, you know, here's another one. This one. She, uh, she was really mean to this black boy we had over um, because she thought we were at war with the blacks. And I was like, what are you talking about? I grew up in a biracial family. You have black relatives. And she said, uh, but I thought we were at war with them. I was like, are you talking about Black Lives Matter? You know, I don't know. (laughs) Anyway, anything girly looking she loves, right? And so she was watching one of the iterations of My Little Pony on Netflix, And, you know, when my kids are watching something, and if I'm not super familiar with it, I'll just sit down and watch. And it was crazy. These girls, like these young girl ponies, I don't know the whole story. I know they all have funny names, you know, Sunshine, Moonflip, or whatever. Uh, So they're arguing over, breaking up with this boyfriend. And um, But it, it seemed like they were normalizing cheating and stuff. And it was really really bizarre to see this and I was just thinking kids are stewing in this stuff their whole life uh, even here here I am a pastor a Christian pretty aware of media generally and this is slipping past me so that was like the end of Netflix um, right there and uh, so we're seeing all sorts of things normalized in very uh, kind of subtle ways to the more d- dramatic stuff as well uh, people are taught from their youngest uh, age to view themselves as victims. Everyone's a victim. And I think that's the biggest problem that we face right now. One of the big things that's about to come through the church, I think that we're going to be hindered by for a while, is this sort of abuse um, narrative. So you ever ended up on like the spiritual sounding board online. I don't know if you know what that is. But it's basically where people, usually women, but not just that, talk about the different abuses that they've had in churches. And that stuff's real. Like, terrible things happen. They're real. Like, there are real abuses of, of power that are, are wicked. Um, but on a few occasions, I read one where I don't even know how I got there. And I was like, I know this person. And I knew the other side of the story. And it was not, this wasn't true at all. And so now, um, if you make someone feel a way, then that's true. It's called emotional reasoning. So emotional reasoning is where if something makes you feel a certain way, then that's what it, it, that's its design. So if I say something that offends you, I meant to offend you, and it's offensive, as opposed to maybe you're the problem, right? Maybe you're too thin-skinned. Maybe you've personalized something, right? And so young people are uh, being raised to see themselves in a constant state of victimhood and soon, anyone that makes them feel bad is going to be an abuser, you know. And I, I hate manipulative ministries, and I've tried my best to undermine them and write on it a little bit. So I, I, it's not that I don't think that that's real, but it's kind of like when everything becomes racism, nothing's racism. When everything becomes abuse, there's nothing. It's just going to lead to greater real abuse. You won't be able to tell the difference between the real stuff and fake stuff because everyone's making fake claims constantly. And this is how people are raised up. So they, they refuse to take responsibility for the outcome of their decision. As a side note, most of your problems are your fault. It's your fault. You caused it. Most of them. Not all of them. But especially if you're an adult. The majority of your problems you're facing right now, the problem is you're not taking responsibility for it. And they rather blame it on their dad, on society, 
on some vague systematic form of oppression. We become a nation of blame shifters, pity seekers, and excuse makers. And it's no surprise then that drug and alcohol abuse is exploding among all groups, but especially younger women who have been taught that success is found in competing with their male peers as opposed to complimenting them. So the abuse of prescription drugs is off the hook right now. The, the amount of alcoholism in women is crazy. It's not at parity with men at all. And I think it's because, I, think, I do think our society hates men, but I think women have been lied to almost more than anybody by our society and told not only can they have it all, but they must have it all. And that is an unbearable pressure to live up, to be able to be a perfect career woman, the perfect mother, and get this all. This, it's, it doesn't blow my mind that people are in constant state of anxiety and trying to, to manage it with different forms of self-medication. Uh, and so I've, in churches I've visited recently, the number of people on anti-depression uh, drugs is crazy. And I'm not anti-using medication want you to be thoughtful about it, and it shouldn't usually be a, something that goes on for your whole life but treats a system or a problem temporarily to get you to where you can get to the underlying cause. But the number of people that are just so stressed out and fearful right now is crazy. And then our government, our government is out of control. It's constantly overspending and overreaching. It used to be funny to look at the different things they gave money for... Um, into the goofy little experiments. Uh, but it's not funny anymore. And it matters in ma- uh, it meddles in matters that are fall out so- far outside its design of our founding documents, and more importantly, the design of God. Uh, we live under the tyranny of an overbearing administrative state which believes it can close businesses and churches at the whim of the governor. That's where we live. You know, this is dystopia. It really is. This is 1984 and Brave New World. It's it all, it's combined. I love the beginning of uh, Amusing Herself to Death because it had this really fascinating argument, who is right, Orwell or Brave New World, right, Huxley. And he ends up arguing that it was Huxley that was right, that we would be filled with so much pleasure that we just wouldn't care about um, truth or lie. Turns out that they're both right, that the controlling of uh, information and constant flow of pleasure both have happened. And it, we just, we're, we're frogs in a pot. We've just gotten used to things um, that are crazy. The fact that you can have your bank account frozen for a, a belief, you know, that's wild stuff. These are things that you would have never believed were possible um, just a few years ago. People forget that sodomy was illegal in America to 2003 with Lawrence versus Texas. And then the... Um, the report that Scalia writes in it says we should leave this on the books. Just so it says, even if we can't enforce it, it should stay on the books so it says it's wicked and evil. And then, just a few years later, we, we basically legalize gay marriage, or in, in function we do. And now, um, and now we're moving towards uh, normalizing pedophilia, um, multiple partners, like all this stuff, just constantly on us. You know? And then we got this, this freak show in our political government, you know, you see this, um, these guys dressed up as women, you know. Why is it always with transgender men that they have to have deep voice? I'm Sally. You ever notice that? But uh, I don't think so. <laughs> it's quite the Adam's apple there, Sally. Uh, so, 
It's a pretty messed up world where the best women are all men. And that's the world we live in right now. That's twisted. Um, so yeah, we live in this really twisted time and our government is, uh, is not passive. Our government's not neutral. It's a religious state, like all states are religious. And worse yet, we are seeing churches and Christian leaders imbib and reflect these same mentalities, but do it under the guise of faithfulness to God. We see churches either explicitly or implicitly bowing down to the false idol of Black Lives Matter and all this uh, race politics. We see them claiming or at the very least implying that having white skin somehow makes you inherently a racist oppressor. We see them excused of violence and destruction or destructive behavior of riots and somehow recast them as mostly peaceful protests by people who have the right to be angry at white Christian males. Remember that? Like there's a fire in the background and they say it's mostly a peaceful protest. And you're like, this is, this is so out there, corny. It's like I was watching, a, I saw a clip come out on CNN and it was the, uh, the, the raid alarms in a Ukrainian city going off on CNN. And then it cuts to a Chili's commercial where this guy is dancing like, <laughs> it's like cowboy dancing. And we're not as serious people anymore. It's all, it all feels fake. I was, uh, I don't watch TV very much, um, but I was down in Miami last July during the Delta variant, right? The Velociraptor variant, the T-Rex variant, the vitamin C, they just have to keep coming up with names. But I was down there at a renewables conference. So these are people that are environmentalists, but they're involved in solar and all that sort of stuff. And I was uh, down there working and I turned on the TV in the hotel room and right away it came on MSNBC. And there was all these little tickers at the bottom, just like running everywhere, you know, alert, alert, alert. They're all alerts. And uh, we, we used to, when I was younger, we had alerts for like tornadoes. And then the first one I remember that was kind of stupid was like the ticker for the OJ Simpson. He got, OJ Simpson was a football player uh, that killed his wife and uh, her boyfriend, I guess, and got away with it. And he got in his, his pickup truck and just started driving his Bronco. And everyone was just obsessed with it and was watching it. And, and we were watching it like it mattered to our life or something. And there's this little ticker at the bottom of the screen. That's when those things started to get really popular. And now there's alerts for everything, news alert. Like, like you have to know what's going on. And when I was down there at, uh, at this conference, there were all these alerts about the, the Delta variant and how scary and how it's paralyzing society. And so if you're just like watching that TV, you think it's like dystopian, end of the world, apocalypse, Roland Emmerich sort of movie. You ever seen uh, like Independence Day or the day, day, he makes all those goofy movies where everything, like the earth splits. There's one called Moon something, Moonfall or whatever. If you've seen those trailers, that's his movies. But you'd think the world was ending. And then you look outside and everyone's just like walking on the street and going out with their life and there's people with dogs. And then you look at MSNBC and they're trying to normalize uh, violent behavior. They're trying to normalize acting like a crazy person, like Chicken Little running around saying the sky is falling. You know, I've so far survived the first version of COVID. It ruined coffee for a while. The way I found out I had COVID, um, this is part of my effeminacy that I struggle with, is that I do, uh, on occasion, uh, drink blueberry cobbler flavored coffee. Um, uh, And it smells so good. 
it doesn't really taste that good, but it smells exactly like blueberry cobbler. My grandmother used to make it, so I, I like it. And then I went over to uh, the place where I get my blueberry cobbler coffee and on occasion peak Moscato. Um, and <laughs> I smelled my coffee and it smelled like nothing, <laughs> like nothing. And that's when I realized I had COVID. And then I, I got Delta too and, um, and nothing happened. And so some people, we have a woman in our congregation that's still fighting for her life. But for most of us, it didn't, it didn't do a lot. And it, it certainly didn't justify the mass panic. But they want us panicked. So we'll look for a savior. Right? So we'll lean on them. And that's become normal now. That doesn't matter what's real. They can just say whatever they want. We're seeing churches, even whole denominations, soften their approach to homosexuality and have women who are more or less not outright if not outright, function as pastors in their congregation. So in the PCA, my former denomination, there's a church not too far from here, actually, close to D.C., where they, uh, we don't have women pastors. We don't, that's against our rules, right? We have shepherdess that look over uh, parts of our congregation. Just the women? Oh, no, the whole congregation. So they don't have women pastors. They have shepherdess, which is, you know, the feminine version of shepherd, which is where the word pastor comes from. (laughs) They have women pastors. They have homosexual pastors. These guys that think it's okay to identify as gay, right? What, I can identify as a fornicator too and be a pastor? It's not normal. It's one thing to struggle with the sin. It's another thing to say it's an intrinsic part of your identity and identify you that way, right? That stuff has to be put to death, mortified, Um, and that's, that PCA, for a long time, has been very, uh, it's been, for the most part, good uh, for a big chunk of its existence. If you're not, if you're really rigid, maybe not. Um, but I think it's, uh, it's just dived into the ground the last 10 years. And it's happening really quick. And so we're watching uh, them, the SBC, all of them just, like, go headlong into um, being okay with homosexuality. I've seen... Basically, what happened is we removed the ick factor. You know, the right way to react to homosexuality and lesbianism is, it's gross, right? It's supposed to be gross. It's unnatural. It's nasty, right? And they removed that through media by making everyone that, like, uh, uh, what's that one movie, uh, American Beauty. I didn't see it, but I did read the Wikipedia entry on it, so... uh, in that, in that movie, they make the gay couple next door to be the normal one and the nuclear family of the husband and wife and kids to be the messed up one. And they've been doing that for a long time. And now in every show, I tried to watch that new Star Trek uh, show. I forget what it's called. But everyone's gay in the future um, on, on the Enterprise or whatever. It's Discovery, that's what it's called. And they've been trying to normalize this. But it, it's usually like a 1% of a populace, you know, homosexuals, it's not common at all. And a lot of those uh, data that we have comes from from, uh, Kenzie, actually, and he lied. He got all his information primarily from jail subjects, not the normal representation of the populace. And they're acting like this is all normal. And so our churches are fitting itself to the culture, right? They're not standing against it and say, that's not normal. And that's happening everywhere. And then we saw churches close their doors on Sundays, for months after months, because the government told them that they must neglect the fellowship of the saints. I cannot declare war on Iraq. I can't. I'm not a member of government. 
I don't have that sort of power. That's not given to me. Just like they can't tell us, tell me, an ordained minister of the Lord to shut down my church. They don't have that authority. It's not given to them. That's not inside their domain. They can't, they can make whatever suggestions they want, but they can't tell us what to do in that way. Just like I can't tell them there's, there's limits and spheres. And everyone just said, okay, okay. And what's crazy about a lot of the churches is how many of them went far beyond which, what was even recommended by the CDC. There was a church in our community that you had to go online and to register your seats to come in on Sunday. And then I know one community over where you actually, there was a lottery because it, you could only fit so many people because of social distancing. And it was crazy. I, whoever imagined, think of how many pastors just try to guilt people into attendance, right? So they feel like their church is growing. Um, clearly not a problem here. He might try to guilt you to stay home so you have space, you know, but, but no. But a lot, you, you've been in churches for years where a pastor, like, no one will show up. And now you got people telling folks not to come to church. And some of the people obliged them. They just stopped going to church and found other churches. When they do finally reopen, they require that all the members play along with the facade of this pandemic, they operate from a posture of fear, and if you go, uh, if you do, uh, if you don't go along with it, they'll shame you as if you hate your neighbors. And well, I mean, the mass thing. I, I'm open. I, I'm persuadable on most of these things, but I don't understand. Like, how, what's what is this magic? Like, I can pull it down and drink and spit. This goes everywhere, right? You know, it's like floating through the air. Um, but that spit doesn't count. The spit that counts is when it's over my mouth. I mean, I, I'm trying to make sense of all this and think through it. And uh, when you, in these, when these people would try to talk to their elders, like I don't understand, how does this make sense? And like, no, submit to authority, right? And they wouldn't have the conversations, and it, and it just drove people out of the churches. And those are a few of the mountains that are before us as a people. Now, thankfully. God is using this to revive the churches, I think. I think uh, there's a lot of good coming from it. But it's very discouraging to see once great institutions be reduced to smoldering, smoldering piles of ash. You know, what I, what I want is the SBC and the PCA to repent and become orthodox, right? It's a big country. There are a lot of people that need churches and hear the gospel and need to be disciplined. We can't do it by ourselves. They're not, they, we, don't, we don't have this competitor mindset. We want them to repent. And to see uh, these things turn into what they are, you know, the gospel coalition, what a joke that's been. It's been, I got banned from it 12 years ago, but um, for criticizing Tim Keller. But, but we've watched things that once had some potential turn into just nothing. And it's discouraging. And the West on a whole is in a rough state when you look at, when you start to look at the stats and see how things have trend, um, I think older people see it a little more than younger folks because this is the world you're born into. And, I, and again, like I said at the beginning, I'm happy to see that uh, optimism. Uh, and I, I share it because I know that God can turn a mountain into a plane, just like he did here. God can take a woman like Sarah with a dead womb and make her the mother of a nation. God to can take a few fishermen and a tax collector and start a movement that turns the world upside down. The nation of Israel 
And the true Israel had small beginnings. And so it is with times of restoration. They have small beginnings. And you become discouraged as you look back on the former glorious times. This is a theme that repeatedly comes up in the post-exilic books. Here's uh, an example from Ezra 3, verse 10. Now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. They sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard far away. So the young people saw a promising future. The old people grieved over what had been lost. And let's be careful uh, to fall in the former group, right? Not to whine, but to build, to actually make something. Listen to Haggai Two, God says, speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheotel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? How do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? So when they finally build the temple, um, it's not that impressive at all. And he continues, for thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea also and the dry land and I will shake all the nations and they will come with the wealth of all nations and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So this isn't talking about the literal temple. That temple is gone. It's destroyed. It was destroyed definitively in 70 AD. He's speaking about the temple of his people. First Peter, it says, and coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up uh, as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The destruction of the temple ended up being a good thing, in a sense. It's strange how God so often moves his people forward through what appears to be failure or disaster. The cross is a great example, but there's many more. Think of the martyrdom of Stephen and the persecution that followed. It led to the gospel being sent out and eventually to the conversion of the apostle Paul. And we have to have spiritual eyes. We often are trying to preserve the past when God has a greater future in store for us. We struggle with this because he likes to do things his way. His ways are often very humble, small, and even unconventional. Then verse 8 through 10, Also the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundations of this house, and his hands will finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, for who has despised the day of small things? It's easy to despise the day of small things, 
right? Seeds, they're small. Investments, savings, weight loss, right? We've been, me and my wife are getting in shape again, and I have a hate-hate relationship with the scale at present. I got a better scale, and I thought that would make it help. It's worse. I like the old one better. Uh, <laughs> spiritual discipline starts very small. Churches, denom- de- denominations, the nation of Israel, the kingdom of God, they all start small. Localism is small by design. It's local. It's how it starts. And small actions, when repeated, have powerful results, but those results aren't immediate. I love buying Christmas gifts for my kids. I torture them every year, and I bought some of my kids rocks for this Christmas. I even told them I bought them rocks for Christmas because I knew they wouldn't believe me. And they kept saying, Dad, what did you get me for Christmas? I said, I bought you rocks. And they said, no, you didn't. What did you really get me? I am telling you the truth, darling. I bought you rocks. All right, come on, what did you really buy? Uh, It's heavy. Um, and it's made of rock. It's rocks. <laughs> I bought you rocks. You didn't buy me rocks. Uh, you're going to be a little surprised I here in a couple days. Now, uh, the rocks I bought them are geodes. <laughs> rocks with crystals inside of them. You can open them uh, up with a single swing of a sledgehammer, but that will destroy the cool formations inside, you know? And so there's, you actually can buy these little rock crackers. Um, they're like a chain that you kind of, uh, pump and it cracks the rock open. It's really cool. Um, and I thought it'd be cool to buy them rocks to mess with their head for a couple of weeks. <laughs> what was hilarious is we waited to wrap them the night before. And then I said, all right, guys, uh, let's get your Christmas gifts. And there's, it's just, we just put wrapping paper around rocks. So there's this line of what's clearly looks like rocks. And when you unwrapped them, it was still rocks because that's what I got them. Um, but and they're like, what's going on? I'm like, ah, it's geodes. There's crystals in the middle. And so we tried to break one, like, patiently with a little screwdriver and a hammer. And then uh, we broke another one with a, a sledgehammer. And, and that, that was a mistake. Um, but the right way to do it is to find, like, a, where there's a little bit of a crack. And this tap, 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 right? And it's like 99 taps, and you don't see anything. And then all of a sudden... On the hundredth tap, a crack forms. Now, which tap formed the crack? Which one? Well, all hundred did. It didn't just produce the desired result immediately. Whether good or bad, that's how habits and change and creating things work. Their power is uh, realized over time, and it comes seemingly out of nowhere. Now, I'm not a big Billy Ray Cyrus fan. That's Miley Cyrus's dad. Hannah Montana. Um, but I remember he, him getting interviewed, and I saw it uh, on MTV back in the day. And they asked him, what was it like to be an overnight success? And he's like, I've been singing in bars for 20 years. You don't feel overnight to me, <laughs> you know? And for this, this church to grow here, right? This, this is more than a year's of work. This is years of work. And then the Lord has saw fit in his wisdom to bring people here. Um, so do you want big results in carry? Yeah. But it starts with small things that sometimes won't seem very impressive at first. It tap, 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 right? I like what James Clear says in his book, uh, Atomic Habits. You do not rise to the level of your goals. 
you fall to the level of your systems. So people think having these big goals, that'll motivate me. It, it actually has an opposite effect a lot of times, especially if it's a big goal that you announce online, right? Well, I'm going to say I'm going to get in shape online because that'll motivate me to actually do it. Well, what happens is when you declare you're going to do something like that, you get a little bit of a dwarfin that says, like, you feel like you've actually accomplished something just by announcing it. And it's always best when you're making changes to kind of keep it quiet and just go at it. Maybe tell a couple friends. Uh, so, yeah, your systems is what you fall to. Your goal is your desired outcome. Your system is a collection of daily habits that will get you there. And communities are rarely formed overnight. So this year, I, one thing I'd recommend is focusing uh, less on outcomes and focusing more on the habits that precede the results, right? Just learn to talk to people uh, in your community. I'll give you a couple uh, cheats. Uh, if someone has a tattoo, I'm going to ask them about it. If someone has a piece of jewelry that sticks out to me, I'm going to ask them about it, right? It's probably special. Um, if it's someone, uh, I'm going to go to the same, I'm going to get my hair cut by the same person over and over again. I've been doing that for years wherever I live and get to know them, get to talk to them. And I just build a habit of talking. I don't street preach. I'm not against it. I just don't need it. Um, I, I don't need to drive to a stadium two hours away to preach to the gospel, preach gospel there. I'm, I'm busy right where I'm at. And I've learned just the habit of talking to people to get to the gospel pretty quick. It's nothing wrong with street preaching. Uh, it, it is a problem if you're neglecting the people that God has sovereignly placed all around you. Um, that's an issue. But if you just build the habit of talking to people, the habit of showing, at, showing up at city council, you know, the habit of whatever, it, and it becomes part of your modus operandi. It's part of what you're doing. And, and like I said, funny enough, big goals can actually undermine long-term lasting results. Let me give you an example. A goal focus, focus excuse me, or orientation can make it about the end result and not behavior change. How many times have you or someone you know made, a ma- made massive radical changes to achieve a goal and did, but slowly fell back into their old habits, put the weight back on or whatever? I've seen people that have done this. They've, they, they go deep in with like Dave Ramsey, right? Dave Ramsey's great for getting out of debt, not the greatest for making wealth. But really, if you have bad habits with money, I've seen people do the total money makeover, and it was this big push, and that, and, but they didn't really build habits sometimes. That's actually what I like about Ramsey's system. It's more about behavioral change is what he's trying to accomplish. And that's why when he tells you you should pay off your smallest debt first and not your biggest, when people are like, well, the biggest one, I have more interest on that. And his whole point, like, well, look, being good at math isn't, hasn't been your strong point. <laughs> what we need to do at this point is change the, the behavior. Just pay something off, get the reward of paying it off, and then, you know, as you develop those habits. But um, when you get super goal-focused, uh, you'll temporarily change your life and not build habits. And it's, it's primarily uh, because it's not uh, about losing weight that we should be focused on. It's about cultivating a healthy lifestyle. It's not about some sort of grand vision of what Carrie should be um, and what your relationship should be to all these people in this finished product. You can kind of have that out there. But first, it's about building the actual habits that 
get you involved in your community. Anytime someone moves into your community, stop by, bring them some cookies or something, and say, hey, uh, if you need any help knowing about things around here, we're always around, here's the number if you need to call us or whatever. Just introduce yourself. Um, it, like, do it every time. We built the habit of we always would uh, invite everyone to our Christmas Eve service in our neighborhood. And so we had like two days of cooking uh, or baking all these cookies. And then we'd go from house to house, giving everyone cookies and an invitation. We did that every year for four and a half years. And there's people that never came to our church once, but towards the end, they loved that we showed up at their doorstep. So we lived in a community at the time that was uh, mostly older people. And, and we were like super young compared to everyone else. They're like 70 and 80. And they didn't get to see a lot of folks. So they're happy when we'd come to their doorstep and give them cookies and they'd open up their hearts to us. And we became part of their life, part of their routine. And it was just a habit that we built in like, oh, you know, it's the beginning of December, time to make cookies, you know, and, and visit people. So it's about cultivating a way of life. Um, massive, massive action, if not sustained, won't produce lasting results. It won't. It's better to work out 20 minutes three times a week for a year than to work out two hours four times a week for only a month, right? And apply that to your local community. Get involved in sustainable ways and maintain. You don't need to take a lot out of these talks. You don't need to take almost anything, just one thing. You can just take one thing um, that the Lord is working on your heart about or something that connected in your mind and it hits you, we should do that or I should change there. Like grab that one thing and act on it, right? Actually apply it. We, we can't fall in love with this consuming mass information. One of the best practices I adopted years ago, and I'm kind of radical in this area, but uh, I've had to change it. But when I wasn't the main guy preaching every week, the only sermon I listened to was my pastor's sermon. I don't listen to other sermons. I'm not against it. I just don't like turning sermons into commodities. I figure that on Sunday, when my pastor is preaching to me from the word of God, that is the main thing that the Lord wants me to listen to. So I'd listen to that sermon, and I'd take one or two notes down, and I'd meditate on it the whole week. And I would study the issue and go back to the text and repeat each week and start focusing on all right, what are you saying to me, God? Like having lots of information just come through your mind and not acting on it is a very bad habit. It's consumerism, right? It's gluttony of a sort. And so what has the Lord hit you with? Where is the conviction? What is the thing you need to pray about? That's what you should be focusing on. You need to focus on making a way of life. And don't come out of here with big goals. Come out of here with some small actions to change, right? Visit your neighbors. Set the goal of getting to know all your neighbors' names and then say, we're going to visit one a week, no matter how terribly awkward it is. I remember, I remember walking up to this door, knocking on it. It's already awkward. I'm a big guy. And I got little kids with me. It's just weird. You know, they're like, I don't think he's a Jehovah Witness. Doesn't quite look like one, you know. And then uh, you think you, you, the dogs run and bark. So you're like, well, I think someone's here. And then you hear some movement. And then you walk away. 
and then you hear someone come to the door, and then you walk up again, and you know they're watching you out the window probably. It's so awkward, so weird. But we just pushed through it and got to know these people. And a lot of the changes at first is um, awkward. I know when a lot of guys try to dress better, they, there's this like correction period where they stop always dressing like a slob and they want to dress a little bit better and they kind of go too far. And uh, they can dress really nice and their guy friends will uh, deal with that, right? They will te- tease them. Ah, what's your fashion model now? You know, what's up, Abercrombie? You know, whatever. You just start teasing them. Um, it's a nice shirt. Do they make it for men? Uh, but <clears throat> you, you'll do that, and they'll start to, there's a correction phase when you're making changes in your life, right, where you kind of find your equilibrium. That's okay. It's okay. What? Why are you waving at me? <laughs> okay. Let's make sure I'm not saying There's a correction phase where you have to figure these things out. And so find one or two things and just go for it. Go for it. We often wither under seemingly insurmountable challenges. And that's because we view our own power as the primary resource. And if that is the case, then the cultural challenges we face really are insurmountable. Uh, However, God's spirit is at work in his people to accomplish his purposes. He's at work in you. There is no such thing as an insurmountable challenge for God. Therefore, we should soldier forward in faith, in confidence, knowing that the battle is the Lord and it almost always pleases him to accomplish his will through works that have very small beginnings. So let's ask that the Lord would bless those efforts in our life and those efforts in this church. Father, I thank you for your word and how it stirs us up to repentance and to action, God. I do pray that the areas of our life that we need to repent where we have just been gluttons for information uh, where we've been proud and not been doers of your word, that you would lead us into repentance and we would be doers of your word, God. God, I pray that we would benefit from the things that we hear, that they would change and shape us and make us more like your son. I pray that we would be lights in darkness, God, that we would be an example and a demonstration of your gospel. I pray for all the people that attended here the last couple days that you would uh, strengthen and encourage them, Lord, that you would uh, give them the wisdom to show how they can be a blessing according to your word in their community. Lord, we thank you that you are the power, that you are with us, that you are our Father and you care for us, and we have nothing to fear. In your son's name, amen.